Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Uh, the Jewish tradition, we will find persons who not only are tolerant of other religions and other religious figures, but uh, can also be um, have admiration and respect for people and figures from other uh, faith traditions. And this, in this case that we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about uh, the Jewish and the Islamic tradition, which, as you know, uh, from reading the news and from other uh, unhappy events, are today seemingly in a situation of conflict and enmity, and uh, they don't, don't really get along very well with each other. And we do know from the time, for instance, of, of medieval times and the golden age of Spain and what happened in the Middle East uh, when great Jewish philosophers such as Rabbi Saadia Gaon and Maimonides and others uh, were very conversant in um, current Muslim religious thinking and writings and employed a lot of that knowledge in their creation and uh, uh, formulation of Jewish religious thought, but whether or not there were positive personal relations between these figures and leading Muslim uh, thinkers and Sheikh and so on, uh, we don't really know very well. And once again, interestingly, the son of Maimonides was called Avraham. Maimonides had one son who he called Avraham because his great hero, the great hero of Maimonides was Abraham. Okay, because Abraham was the person who started it all and discovered monotheism and brought it to humanity, and Maimonides thought that Abraham, perhaps rather than Moses, was the real hero and the origin of everything. So he named his son Abraham, and Abraham, the son of Maimonides, famously uh, thought that the, Shuch, the Sufi practices and mystical uh, ways of uh, activity were consonant with Jewish tradition. He believed that the Sufi tradition had preserved various insights 
and practices and beliefs and ways of knowledge that had been characteristic of the prophets of Israel in biblical times and had been lost to the Jewish tradition. And now the Jews could and should uh, repossess that knowledge through acquaintance with the practices and thought of uh, Sufi masters. And this is a certain sense surprising because that's not what people would think that Maimonides, who is seen as like a supreme rationalist, is that what he would teach his son to be a Sufi mysticist. But the son didn't think that there was any contradiction between what his father had done in the realm of Jewish philosophy and what he was propagating. Uh, but once again, I don't know that we know definitely about any personal interactions of Abraham, the son of Maimonides, and Sufi persons of his time, although there may well have been. Um, certainly, if we move fast forward to early modern times, um, the atmosphere of interaction and intellectual community, which characterized to a certain extent what was happening in Spain in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, and what was happening earlier in the Middle East. Um, we don't know that that continued into modern times, and we don't know. Um, uh, and in that sense, I was very surprised when, in reading through a book by a rabbi who was born at the end of the 18th century in 1782 and later moved to Jerusalem, Rabbi Yitzhak Farchi, I was surprised to find the uh, text that we will soon be reading together. The text is titled in Hebrew, Ma'asen Ora, an awesome tale that occurred in the city of Damascus in the time of Rabbi Moshe Galante of blessed memory. So the person who is uh, who set down this text in writing is Rabbi Yitzhak Farhi. Rabbi, the Farhi family was a well-known family in uh, the area of uh, Syria, of the Levant, of Syria, and uh, Eretz Israel um, for several centuries. And uh, Rabbi Farhi was a preacher and uh, gave public sermons in various synagogues in Jerusalem in the first decades of the 19th century, and he also wrote books. He was also a member of the Beit Dean of the court of the Jerusalem Sephardic community, and at that time, the vast majority of Jews in Jerusalem were Sephardic uh, from the Middle East. In one of his books, he says he's going to set forth the moral and ethical and religious message that we can learn from the Ten Commandments, and he starts with commandment number one, and he elaborates upon that in commandment number two, and he elaborates upon that, and his way of presenting it is as if he's talking to an audience, a live audience, and it's not surprising because that's what he actually did in real life. So it could be that some of these chapters in the book were actually what he had been telling live audiences, and then he set it down in a more organized form in writing. It's in Hebrew in a very clear and lucid uh, rabbinic Hebrew, 
And when he gets to the third commandment, which is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he says, now in this context, I would like to tell you a story of what happened in Damascus in the time of the Rabbi Moshe Galante. Okay, now, Rabbi Moshe Galante is not a fictitious character. Okay, Rabbi Moshe Galante was the chief rabbi of Damascus. The Galante family was also a well-known family who had rabbis serving in various places, but there was only one person in Damascus called Moshe Galante, and he was the chief rabbi of Damascus from 1781 until 1806 for about 25 years, quarter of a century before he passed away. And this was, okay, Farhi, who's telling this, was in 1782, he was born. So the first 24 years of his life, this person, Moshe Galante, was living and was the chief rabbi of Damascus. Now, if we here sitting in Arizona would tell a tale of what happened in Damascus, that's some faraway exotic place which, before the terrible bombing and suffering that's been happening there in recent years, it is said to be one of the most beautiful and impressive cities of the Middle East. It's a very, very ancient city, and it's based on the fact that uh, if you're in the Golan area in Israel, you see above you the Mount Hermon, which it, its height is 28 meters, 2,800 meters high, which is like something close to 9,000 feet, 8,500 feet. But what you see in Israel is the end of a long mountain range that goes northeast, and uh, the other end of that mountain range is just above uh, Damascus. And the rain and snow that falls on that mountain range, which is much higher, and there's snow there in the winter, and it's much more than in the, uh, goes, seeps down into the rock and comes out as giant springs in the neighborhood of Damascus, creating oasis in the desert and that oasis in the desert from ancient times has been the site of major civilizations and um, uh, in fact uh, those uh, streams that come down are called in Hebrew and they are mentioned in the Bible when Naaman who was the commander-in-chief of the army of Aram and according to the story in the book of Kings, he had leprosy and a young slave girl that they had captured from Israel said, well, we have a prophet in Israel that can cure prophecy. And Naaman came with his whole entourage and he came to the king of Israel and said, you have to cure me of prophecy. Now the king of Israel was a subordinate king to uh, the king of Aram. And he was the chief general of Aram, and the king of Israel said he's just seeking a pretext to make trouble. How could anybody cure leprosy? But he sent him over anyway to the prophet Elisha, and the prophet Elisha said to Naaman, go immerse yourself in the waters of the Jordan River. And Naaman said, what? The Jordan River, that little schlubby stream 
why the waters of Amana and Parpar, of the waters of Damascus, are 10 times better. But his other officers said to him, look, you came all this way. What do you got to lose? So he went and immersed in the Jordan and was cured, according to the Bible. But from this story, we know that the rivers of Damascus were famous in ancient times. And Damascus was a very, very prosperous center. And in fact, in the time frame that we're talking about, Damascus was the capital of the Ottoman province, of which Jerusalem was a subsidiary city. So for people living in Jerusalem, Rabbi Moshe Galante in Damascus was not a mythical figure from the uh, thousand and one nights. He was a real life person living in a real life city that they knew about and were acquainted with. So when Rabbi Farhi is telling this story, he's not telling about an ancient mythical time. He's trying to present it as something in recent history that happened in a place and a time that they all know about. Um, and so he says, Rabbi Galante was a righteous and completely pious man, wise in all the seven wisdoms. Okay, so what is the seven wisdoms? Okay, so it turns out that the seven wisdoms are the seven classic liberal arts that were part of the ancient humanistic curriculum from the Greco-Roman period and continued through medieval and early modern times. And these were grammar, rhetoric, dialectics, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. And any cultured person, that was supposed to be a well-rounded person that knew these seven wisdoms. And classically, and you'll see later why it's important to remember this, the seven wisdoms were exoteric knowledge, meaning it's not something that was a big secret to learn music or mathematics or astronomy. You had to go, there were texts about this, there were teachers that taught this in various frameworks, and it's not a big secret. Uh, it's like people today study different things in university, but it's not a secret. And so uh, different people of different faith traditions and backgrounds, this was the basis of the common universal human knowledge today. At that, I mean, in ancient times. So the, Rabbi Galante was a righteous and completely pious man, wise in all the seven wisdoms, and there was in his generation no one comparable to him except for one Muslim Gentile who was perfect in all of the seven wisdoms. This Gentile also had one advantage over Rabbi Moshe of blessed memory, namely that whoever had a sick relative could go to that Gentile sheikh and plead with him to pray for the sick person and the sheikh would pray in solitude for half an hour and would then say, this one shall live or this one shall die, far be it from us, meaning we shouldn't die, chas as did the Havdil Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. Now, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa is one of the greatest sages 
from the first century of the common era, from the time of Yavne. And in the time of Yavne, immediately after the destruction of the second temple, when the great academy of learned rabbis convened in Yavne to form the nucleus of the basis of the rabbinic tradition that would carry the Jewish people forward uh, for thousands of years, in that generation, which had giants, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa was famous for being a special, holy, and pure and perfect person. And it's said about him in the Mishnah, okay, that he would pray for the sick, and after he prayed for the sick, he would say, this one will live, this one will die. And they said to him, how do you know that? So he said, if when I pray, my prayer flows forth easily, then I know the person is going to live. And if I have difficulty in the prayer, that means that that person's future is going to be difficult. Okay, so in his own generation, there was nobody like Hanina Bendosa in this respect. And I did a search. Um, uh, there are different databases. It's very, very difficult to find in the entire tradition of the Jewish rabbinic tradition that any person is compared to Hanina Bendosa. In fact, I found one such person who was described in a certain work, Rabbi Yitzchak the Blind, who was one of the founders of the Kabbalistic tradition. They said about him that he was like Hanina Mendoza. So to say about a Jewish person that that person has this great status is like very, very rare. To say this about a non-Jewish person is very radical. <laughs> okay. When the news of this came to the ears of Rabbi Galante, he was very amazed by this, and he said to himself, this Gentile is more holy and pure than I am, for the books of life and of death are revealed to him. Okay, as you know from the service of Yom Kippur and this, the, uh, the, the, the picture is that God has the book of life and the book of death, and some persons he writes there, and some person he writes there, and this, who knows who is where that person has the books of life and death revealed to them. And here, obviously, this Muslim sheikh has that capacity. Yet I serve God, says Rabbi Galante, and engage throughout the day in the Torah of God and his commandments. So why am I not like this Gentile sheikh? Should a daughter of priests not be equal to a chambermaid? Meaning, I'm a Jewish rabbi. I study Torah. I'm very proficient in Torah. I do everything I should. I'm one the, such a very good at that. So in the proper order of things, who should come out on top? Who should be able to be connected to God that they would know these things? Obviously, I'm Jewish. Okay, so there's like the Kohen or the Kohen, that's the priest or the priestess there, should be higher up than the chambermaid, this Goy. So it seems to him, against the natural order of things, that some non-Jewish person should have this capacity and not him. 
And the rabbi's sorrow was very deep, and he sought for some way to enter the home of that Gentile sheikh and to frequent his company so that by and by, the sheikh might possibly reveal to him the reason whereby he attained that great honor. Okay, so first of all, he has this picture that the Jew should be better than the non-Jew. Two, if the non-Jew nevertheless does or knows something that the Jew doesn't know how to do, it must be the case that they have some technique, some, as they say in modern, some patent, some way of doing this, and we just have to discover that technique. He must have some special thing, that, and we'll, we'll find that out if we'll become friendly with him. So the rabbi summoned to him the head of the community, meaning the head of the Jewish community, and commanded him, go to the sheikh and say to him, the rabbi of the Israelites has heard highly of you and would like to come and greet your visage if you permit him to do so. Now, in a well-operating Muslim society, the people who are supposed to be at the top are the Muslims. Below that are the people of the book, or of the books who have holy revelation, the Jews and the Christians, but they're not Muslim. And they are allowed to be there under the auspices and the protection of the Muslims as long as they don't try to be too uppity. And below that are people who are pagans or idolaters who really don't have justification to be living under a Muslim government and rule. So the Jews have their own niche, but it's a secondary one in the proper order of Muslim society. So now, the head of the Jewish community, because as you know, not only today, but also in, for all generations, the head of the community was never the rabbi. The head of the community were always lay people. And they hired the rabbi, or chose the rabbi, to fulfill various functions in the community. And typically, the head of the community would be some person who was knew about the ways of the world and had connections and was so on. So the rabbi is coming to the Jewish head of the Jewish community. He says, look, you, through your connections, get to that sheikh and tell him that I, the rabbi, want to meet him. Now, it wasn't very easy to establish that connection, for that sheikh was greater than all the Ottoman imperial officials, and all the great officials were wont to offer many presents so as to attain the privilege of an audience, and they would come and bow down him, bow down, bow down before him to obtain his blessing. But he never set foot outside of his palace and never revealed himself to the multitude. So he was like a sort of a seclusive, mystic, holy figure, highly respected by the Muslim community who uh, would want his blessing and so on. But it wasn't so easy to connect him. So the head of the community went to the sheikh and told him all the words of the rabbi and the sheikh said to him, I too have heard tell of your rabbi that he is a wise man and I wish to meet him. Therefore go to your rabbi and say to him that he should indeed come and tarry not. And the head of the community returned to the rabbi and told him all the words of the sheikh. So the rabbi arose and went there. Now it's not surprising in a situation where we have a dominant majority and a minority of lesser status 
that the people in the minority know about what's what in the majority. Okay, so for Jews living in Rome to know who's the Pope, that's not surprising. For the Pope to know who's the chief rabbi of the Jews, that's more surprising. <laughs> Uh, and so on, and so here we see that according to the story, the sheikh had heard of this rabbi and was interested in meeting him, and so now the rabbi comes and presents himself. So who now is in the position of relative power? The sheikh, right? He has higher status, uh, he's a Muslim, he's a Muslim leader within the Muslim world, so obviously he's of a higher style. When the sheikh saw the face of the rabbi, he found a favor in his eyes. Okay, in Hebrew, he found favor in his eyes. And this phrase reminds us of the situation of Queen Esther. The same phrase. She, okay, Achashverosh holds the power. He can do with her what he wants, and she wants something from him. In the case at hand, the rabbi wants something from the sheikh, but the person of power is the sheikh. So now the rabbi comes, and he finds favor in the eyes of the sheikh, just like Queen Esther comes very hesitantly and in fright to the King Kashverosh, and when he sees her, she finds favor in his eyes. And what does he do? He raises up the scepter and he says, You can approach me. What do you want? Okay, so here now, in this role of Esther, is Rabbi Galante. The Sheikh saw the face of the rabbi, found favor in his eyes, and received him with honor and with good countenance, and sat him down before him and inquired as to his well being. In the course of their conversation, the sheikh asked the rabbi, saying, I have heard tell of you that you are a man of wisdom. Have you perchance knowledge of the wisdom of such and such? Now, what is this? One of the seven wisdom. Maybe ask them about astronomy. Maybe ask them about rhetoric. Maybe ask them about music. And the rabbi answered, sir, God has granted me a little of that wisdom. The sheikh began to test the rabbi. And the rabbi opened his mouth in that wisdom, and the sheikh realized that he was chock full of that wisdom, male vegadush in Hebrew. Now the sheikh had thought that no one was like him. When he recognized the wisdom of the rabbi, he was bound to him by a great love and said to him, my brother, my friend, know that today you have caused me great joy by your wisdom. I therefore entreat you not I therefore entreat you not to refrain from visiting me at least once a week so that I may enjoy conversing with you about matters of wisdom. Okay, now, here we begin to see a different kind of asymmetry. Because what happened when the rabbi heard that this sheikh had this power of knowing about matters of life and death, was the rabbi happy that someone else aside from him had that? No. He was disturbed. He felt it shouldn't be that way. But when the sheikh sees that the rabbi has this great knowledge of the seven wisdoms, is the sheikh disturbed about that? And he says, how could a mere Jew have that knowledge? No. The sheikh 
is pleasantly impressed. He's happy to find somebody to talk with and to learn from. So in that sense, he is a true philosopher, philosoph, a lover of knowledge. And he doesn't care, it doesn't disturb him that this is now coming from a lowly Jew in the status of, so the hierarchy doesn't bother him. It did bother Rabbi Galante. After two days had passed, the sheikh could not resist his great desire. Hebrew, rov teshuka. And he sent to the rabbi two servants and a horse to ride upon so the rabbi might come to him in great honor. Okay, now here there's phrases that if we told it about people today, oh, they, oh, they must be gay. What does that mean that he has a great desire, which is also the same word for lust in Hebrew, tishuka gedolah, to see. No, but at that time they believed that people could have intellectual desire and be intellectually attracted and drawn to someone else with great knowledge and status. And it was a love of wisdom which was like an erotic love of wisdom. And they didn't feel embarrassed about attributing this to the sheikh or to uh, the rabbi. And he sent to the rabbi two servants and a horse to ride upon. Oh, so, however, in the eighth century of the common era, there was a great Muslim caliph called Omar, and he wrote a whole set of rules how the people of the book Ahl al-Kitab could live amongst the Muslims, but they had to display and behave in ways that showed that they had lesser status. And one of these rules was that a non-Muslim could never ride a horse. They could ride a donkey, they could ride a mule, they could go by foot, but they couldn't ride a horse, because a horse is like you're a man of status, you're like a knight, uh, and you're higher up, and you have power, and like a cavalry, so a non-Muslim can't ride a horse, according to the rules of Umar. And now what is this sheikh doing? He's breaking the rules. He is sending a horse for the rabbi to ride on. And this shows us that he could care less about the conventional hierarchy when he sees somebody who he thinks is remarkable and a great person of status. What does he care that it's a Jew? Okay, yes, sir. It also resonates with the uh, book of Esther, which uh, Haman was mortified, leaving him on a horse. Okay, so that's correct. That's a good point. To ride on a horse from the book of Esther, we know, is to show how somebody is important. So here, if you would say that the sheikh is like the king, it's not, and the servants are not Haman, but the sheikh is like the king, and he's giving the rabbi to ride on a horse, okay? And he's showing by that that he regards him as a person of high status that he admires, and he's not bound. By convention. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
The rabbi arose and went to the sheikh who received him with great honor and embraced and kissed him and said to him, No, my friend, that since we parted, my soul became linked to your soul and I could no longer wait and restrain myself until I sent for you to me to quiet the flame of passion. And immediately the sheikh asked him, Have you knowledge of such and such wisdom? And the rabbi answered, God has been kind to me and given me that also. I guess he was asking now about a different one of the seven wisdoms. And they began to discuss that wisdom. And the sheikh saw that he, the rabbi, was chock full of that too. And he was filled with a great joy and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, come to me every two days. So now, in a certain sense, the tables are reversed. Because who wants to find favor in the eyes of who? Okay, the sheikh wants to find favor in the eyes of the rabbi. And the rabbi did so, for he wished to achieve his purpose. Okay, yes, sir. That's also like the book of Esther, uh, Esther inviting them back. Right. Over where we, you know, come to another part. Okay, so the question is here, who is Esther and who is, so Esther in a certain sense was subordinate and she wanted to, put it a little bluntly, manipulate the king to get him to do what she wanted him to do, which was ultimately to get rid of Haman and save the Jews from destruction. So she was manipulating. Now the person who is here in the position of manipulating is the rabbi. Okay, he is getting the sheikh to admire him and to like him and to want to be in his company because the rabbi has a hidden agenda, which is he wants to know how to be like Chania ben Dosa and find out about the books of life and the books of death. And the sheikh is a true lover of wisdom. And the rabbi, however, seems to be playing him along in order to get something that is a concealed purpose. And the rabbi doesn't have such great pleasure in discourse about the seven wisdoms, but rather he wants to get to a different point and he's leading the sheikh on. Okay, so you can see by reading this text that the author of this text, okay, because who is the author of this text? So it's printed in a book by Rabbi Farchi. The book was printed in 1842. But who is the author of this text? Rabbi Farchi says, I'm going to tell you a tale of what happened, okay, 40 or 50 years ago. We don't know. Was it Rabbi Farchi himself? Did this have some basis in reality and he was telling about something that really happened? Was it a parable? Okay, but he's, from his point, he's presenting it as a real-life figure, Rabbi Moshe Galante. But in any case, whoever is telling this tale is presenting the rabbi in what we would understand to be a less attractive role than the sheikh. The sheikh is sincere the sheikh couldn't care about the Jews being, this Jewish person being of a lower, 
hierarchy, is showing him honor, is breaking the rules, is really engaged in sincere intellectual interaction, and the rabbi has this hidden agenda. Now, and the sheikh realized that he was, me, Rabbi Galante, completely proficient in all of the seven wisdoms. Now, the sheikh was missing an element of one of the wisdoms without which he could not be perfect in that wisdom. Like he knew math, but he didn't know a certain kind of algebra. With regard to this, the sheikh asked the rabbi, do you have knowledge of that wisdom? And the rabbi replied, thank God, I am expert in that wisdom. Then the sheikh fell at the rabbi's feet and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, please instruct me in this wisdom, for it is unknown to me. And now the rabbi says, okay, that's my chance. Whereupon the rabbi said, Sir, when I learned all these wisdoms, it came really very dearly to me, for they were not taught to me without fee. You want to learn this, you have to pay a teacher who knows about that. And that's like the first universities were founded as a cooperative of teachers who would be paid by the students to learn whatever it was that the students wanted to learn. They're not teaching it for free. It's not so too I will not teach you without recompense. And the sheikh said to the rabbi, cite whatever sum you wish, and I will pay you whatever you ask for, except for this I am perfect in all the seven wisdoms. And if I give much silver and gold, so as to be lacking in nothing, it is insignificant to me. He says, I'm very rich, and what I really care about is not money. <laughs> I don't care about money. I care about knowledge. I'm willing to pay for that, and if you want money, take the money, give me wisdom. It's a fair exchange. Once again, it's going back to the Gillah of half the kingdom. Well, he or she was asking, okay. Okay. So the rabbi said to him, far be it from me to ask silver or gold for this wisdom, rather... I ask from you to teach me another wisdom in return. The sheikh said to him, is there anything unknown to you? Why, in all that I know, you are more proficient than I. What wisdom do I know that you do not? The rabbi said to him, you have a wonderful wisdom that is beyond me. He said, what wisdom is that? He said, you pray about the sick and the books of life, etc. Because he doesn't want to say death. Are open to you. That wisdom is beyond me. If you reveal to me the secret of that wisdom, I too will tell you the wisdom which is hidden from you. Now, here the rabbi has made his move, but he sort of switched the game because until now they were talking about the seven wisdoms, which is exoteric knowledge, exoteric available to all. And... And now the rabbi is saying, no, but I, let's move to a different realm which is of mystic knowledge. And the sheikh is very surprised by that. He never imagined that that's what they would be discussing. And the sheikh sent him, what you ask is exceedingly difficult. And it is impossible that I reveal this thing to any creature in the world. Okay, why? If you consider... Sufi mysticism. Sufi mysticism operates that there's a master who's like a guru or something, and he has students, 
and certain students who pass all certain levels of knowledge and of, uh, they prove themselves spiritually adept will ultimately get, the master will reveal to them certain practices and secrets and uh, esoteric knowledge. But this is part of a closed religious order by the orders of Sufi scholars and leaders exist until this day in various places in Turkey and the Middle East. Uh, they are the type of Muslims that the Salafis hate. <laughs> okay, uh, in the 18th century in Arabia, uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab who founded the Wahhabi movement which now is dominant in Saudi Arabia did this as a Puritan to purify Islam from these dangerous mystical practices which he regarded as pagan. And since then, the, the Sufi orders have been the target of Salafi, the Salafi sword uh, from uh, the 18th century until now, one place, and, and, and Saudi experienced Ex exported this all across the world and in different places where the Sufi movement had been dominant, now they're under attack from the more radical uh, uh, purist Salafi, for instance, in Pakistan. Until 20 or 30 years ago, Pakistan form of Islam was very moderate, very, they weren't killing each other and so on, but uh, then the Saudi Salafi influence, they paid millions of dollars to create mosques and madrasot and so on. And now people in uh, Pakistan are killing each other left and right. Uh, so getting back here, you can't reveal this. If what you learned by a mystical teaching is something that has to stay within the mystical order and the mystical tradition, and I said, I can't reveal this, the sheikh says. The rabbi said, so too. I cannot reveal this wisdom which is hidden from you except by barter, wisdom for wisdom. The sheikh said, no, my friend, that my father has bound me by oath not to reveal this thing to any person, which is very reasonable. That his teachers or fathers told him this is a secret within the Sufi order. And the rabbi said, I too am bound by oath not to teach this wisdom to any person, which is probably not true. Somebody made him tell by oath that he can't teach musical uh, notation to somebody or harmony or whatever. That's unreasonable, but he's pushing the point. But I say that since it is for my benefit so as to acquire a different knowledge in which I am lacking, surely it is permitted to me. And the oath does not relate to such like. So too your oath is permitted, since you are not selling that wisdom for money, but only to acquire a wisdom in which you are of need, and by virtue of which you will become perfect in all wisdom. Now this move is a classical rabbinic move of hatarat nidarim, the release of oaths, which typically in traditional uh, uh, frameworks happens, for instance, on the eve of Yom Kippur, people will get together a beitin, and they, the beitin will relieve them of the bounding power of the oaths that they took on during the year and didn't manage to fulfill. 
It's called Hatarat Nidarim, and that procedure is outlined in rabbinic works. It's not really found in the Torah, in the Bible. In the Bible, it says, if you made an oath, that's it. You better fulfill that oath because better not to make any vows than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. And it doesn't say anything in the Bible that we could have some move to unravel or untie or unbind oaths. But what this rabbi is trying to convince the sheikh is, yes, we could do it because one of the ways of unbinding an oath is to say, to ask the person, you made an oath to do such and such. Had you known at the time that you were making this oath that certain circumstances would arise that prevented you or made it very problematic for you to fulfill this oath, would you have made this oath? And then the person says, no, had I known that, I would never have made that oath. And then they say, okay, mutar lecha, the oath is unbound and you're not obligated by it. So here's what this rabbi is trying to convince the sheikh. And the sheikh, on the one hand, probably did promise his masters not to reveal this, but he is really is in love with wisdom, and this is his passion, and he really wants to know this kind of algebra or whatever that he doesn't know. So he becomes seduced. He becomes seduced, and he says, therefore, the Rav Sheikh said, even be it as you say, the matter is too hard for you, and I fear that you will not able to do which is necessary in order to know this great secret. The matter is too heavy for you. You will not be able to do it. Okay. In principle, I would be willing, but it's too, you couldn't. Then the rabbi said to him, I am willing to take upon myself all this difficult thing, and I will do all that you require of me. And now the sheikh says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Hearken to my voice and do what I command you. Go now to your home and prepare yourself today to accept upon you a fast of two successive days. Okay, now this is a rabbinic practice that if somebody is going to undertake a fast, which is a voluntary fast, they are mekabel alav. They take upon themselves this obligation. So all of this is rabbinic language. And take care at your meal neither to eat meat or to drink wine which is what they told the high priest before Yom HaKippurim, because you might then become impure. And after eating, go and immerse yourself and put on pure clothes and search your soul with regard to your past actions. Okay, now all of these are Jewish practices in which somebody is preparing themselves for a mystical experience. And these are the type of things that the Kohen Gadol was supposed to be doing in preparing himself for the day of Yom Kippur, what would the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, do on the Yom Kippurim? Enter the Holy of Holies, which was the place that the divine presence, the Shekhinah, was supposed to be residing. And the rabbi did this, and the Sheikh said, go in peace, and on the third day, come to me, and I will tell you the secret of this great thing. And he went to his home, the rabbi, with a broken and humble heart, and he did all that he commanded him. He went down and immersed himself and put on white clothes. Now, this is what the Mishnah says that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, did in 
just before the beginning of Yom Kippurim, Yarad Vitaval, and he put on white clothes, Bigdei Lavan. And so too on the following two days, he did as he commanded, and he added to this by not breaking his fast on the eve of the third day. In the morning, after the prayers, he went to the sheikh. And the sheikh, now this is important to realize that although those two people are now very close to each other and uh, they are now going to embark upon a mystical journey together, the rabbi is not abandoning his Jewish practices. Every day he's dominating, he's doing what a Jewish person should do, and in addition, he is establishing this interaction with the sheikh. Once again, it goes to Esther, three-day fast. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. And the Yom HaShelishi also is reminding us of the journey of Abraham, who on Yom HaShelishi, on the third day, raised up his eyes, and he saw the place that God told him to come with Isaac, and we'll see that that comes in soon. And the sheikh raised up his eyes and saw the rabbi arriving without strength, and he hurried towards him and said, Come, blessed of the Lord, Baruch Hashem, your countenance reveals that you have done all that I told you, the rabbi said, and I am still in fast. The sheikh replied, You have done well, and may you increase in strength. Now come with me, and I will show you this secret. And he went with him to a certain room, the key of which was not given to any person, but was only always in his hand of who? Of the sheikh. And the sheikh opened the door, and they both entered, and locked the door so that no stranger might enter there with them. And they went out of the room into a beautiful orchid. And in the middle of the orchid, there was a pool of living water from the waters of Amana and Parpar. That's the two rivers of the oasis of Damascus. And by the side of the pool, there was a bench, and upon it were two outfits of white garments, one for the rabbi and one for himself. The sheikh said, let's, let's now go down and immerse before we come to the holy place. Now, the whole thing of immersion, purification, was what people had to do in ancient times when they, before they went to the temple mount. And they both went down into the pool, and immersed and changed their garments. And the two of them went together to the heart of the orchid. Now, this is a phrase from Abraham and Isaac. Now, we all remember the story that they're going, and Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. But ultimately, that's not the point of the story because ultimately Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac. Rather, there is a revelation there of God and Abraham calls this mountain by a certain name, Hashem Yireh, God will see, which apparently is also a play in words, Hashem Yireh, God will be seen. And this is also a uh, when the Torah describes the pilgrimage, it says that when all your male 
people of Israel, et penei Hashem, you will come to be seen, but apparently also to experience the presence of God on the holy mountain. And they both went together to the heart of the orchid. Now, what kind of orchid is this? On the one level, from all different descriptions that you could read in books, there really were, and perhaps still are, places like this in real life in the city of Damascus. People who were well-to-do had portions of land through which irrigation channels went in the middle of what would have been a desert, but this is an oasis, and they had fruit trees and beautiful flowers and gardens, so this could be a real-life scene from a, 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 a garden belonging to a wealthy person in Damascus. On the other hand, when they say in Hebrew, pardes, orchid, that's also a mystical journey, a mystical place. Rabbi Akiva and others went la pardes, to the mystical garden, like the garden of heaven. Now, when I showed this text to a friend of mine who's a scholar in Islam, hmm? paradise, pardis and paradise is the same word, basically. And also in Gan Eden, they ate the tree of knowledge. Right, right. So they're going for knowledge, right? Um, and it says uh, um, also... Um, okay, it was a tree of knowledge and... Uh, when I showed this text to a friend of mine who is expert in the Islamic tradition, he said, oh, this pool, sure, in the Islamic tradition, in paradise, there is a pool of pure water where, in the time to come, Muhammad, the prophet, will greet the people that are faithful to him and take them with him to the heavenly abode. So this pool, the Hod, is a well-known image in the Muslim mystical tradition. Okay, well, I didn't know about that, but uh, that's what my, my uh, friend told me. And the rabbi was silently wondering to know what would be the end of the matter, and the rabbi raised up his eyes and saw a structure built in perfect beauty with doors of pure silver covered with all manner of lovely designs, the like of which could not be found in the palace of any king. Now, once again, the Muslim architecture in Damascus from the classical period of the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries was said to be, I was never in Damascus for obvious reasons, um, even before the Civil War broke out, okay, um, Israeli. So I was never there, but people who were there say that the buildings there were tremendously beautiful and ornate and impressive, classic, the greatest uh, achievement of classical Muslim architecture in the Levant. So such a structure could really be in real life Damascus. But it could also be a parable for some kind of shrine in heaven. And when the sheikh drew near to open the door of the building, he sent to the rabbi, take care to enter this house in fear and trembling. See how I act and do likewise. 
And he opened the door and beheld an utterly glorious interior. And on the side, opposite the door, there was a small sanctuary, Aron, covered by a curtain amazingly embroidered with pearls and gems. So you come into the room. On the other side of the room, there's like Aron Kodesh, beautifully ornate. And the sheikh entered the building with great awe and bowed down several times before the sanctuary. Now, the sheikh said to the rabbi, you see what I do? Do that. And the rabbi was exceedingly distressed and thought in his heart that perhaps in the sanctuary there was a foreign god or a figure, and how could I do so? For the sheikh had warned him that he must bow down. Now, what does this show on the part of the rabbi? He had come all this way with the sheikh. And now at the last minute, he believes that the sheikh might be a pagan worshiping an alien god. Now, what does that mean, that by worshiping an alien god, somehow the sheikh has knowledge of the life and the death. So what type, so basically you see that even at this point, the rabbi really doesn't fully trust the sheikh. The sheikh fully trusts the rabbi and is about to reveal to him the mo- what the sheikh considers the most amazing secret. And the rabbi at this moment really does, but he's, Wants to, he has an urge to know what's the secret. But he has to now bow down and maybe there's an idol inside. So what does he do? He says, I envision Hashem before me always. I envision God before me. And he prostrated himself to the earth of the Shechadon, meaning, he says, I'm now bowing down. But from my perspective, I'm not bowing down before what might be inside that ark. Um, in my mind, I have kavana to God, the true God, and I'm bowing down despite whatever might be there. So he wants to play it both ways. And a great fear fell upon him. Okay, Imagedola, which is from... When Abraham, there was the Brit Ben Habitarim, had a great fear, so this is like, okay, because God, he's about to have a revelation. The sheikh said to him, draw near to the sanctuary and open it, and there you will find your wish. And he said this to him in a whisper and a humble heart. Immediately, Rabbi drew near and opened the doors of the sanctuary. The doors, they were of pure gold inlaid with gems, and he saw in the sanctuary a most beautiful tablet engraved with a most fine design of the menorah, above which were written the words, I envision the name of God before me always, Shiviti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, with the tetragrammaton Yudevavi in very large letters. Now, this type of plaque, it says, Shiviti Hashem Tamid is found in any Oriental synagogue and in some Ashkenazic synagogues. Okay, and it's 
to enable the person who's praying or the person who's leading the service to have in his mind the proper intention to uh, the God uh, above. And when the rabbi saw this, he was filled with great joy. What was his great joy? That he had not bowed down in vain. It was not an idol. And he stepped back and bowed down and went out, and they both went out together. So finally was revealed this great secret. Now the rabbi felt this was not such a great big deal. Why? How many plaques like this had he seen in so many synagogues during his life? Another plaque? Yofi, so what? At least he didn't bow down to a foreign sculpture of an alien pagan god. And the rabbi said to him, to the sheikh, now that they were outside, you said to me that I would find there what I asked for, but nothing was revealed to me except what I saw. No chiddush, nothing new. Same old yudke vavke plaque. The sheikh said to him, Know, my brother, that those large letters which you beheld are the name of he who spoke in the universe was created, Mi She'amar Ubara. He is the creator. He is the maker. And the sheikh thought that this was not revealed to any person. Now, he's not saying that this was the Muslim God. He's not saying that this was the God of any particular faith religion. He says, you know, this is, this is the one God who created everything. And the sheikh added, know my brother, that when a person comes to me to pray for his sick one, I go down and immerse and enter this building which you saw in fear and trembling. And I pray there before the sanctuary. And when the prayer is done, I open the gate of the sanctuary. And if I see the letters of the holy name shining brilliantly, I know that he, the sick person, lives. But if I see cloud and fog around it, I know that he dies. And see how greatly you are loved, my brother, that I revealed to you that which are revealed to no creature. So they both opened the ark and they both saw there, according to the story, the same thing. But they had different experiences. For the rabbi, no. But for the sheikh, he experienced this as some kind of direct revelation or communication. And this created for him or enabled him to have a certain type of mystical insight or knowledge about the books of life and the books of death. And the rabbi went back to his home and shed copious tears and said thus, Woe shall be to us on the day of judgment. For see this Gentile who knew the name of the Holy One, blessed be he. How great was the honor that he accorded him. And how much fear and awe were upon him when he entered therein. 
And for this reason, he was worthy of all that honor, meaning, yes, he was a person who was worthy of attaining this mystical experience, but not me. Well, as for us Israelites, what can we answer and what can we say? For it is becoming upon us to do even more than that, and especially when enunciating God's name to become filled with trepidation. Meaning, the Muslim sheikh can achieve and was able to achieve by virtue of his qualities and the way that he came to this potential meeting with God to really experience such a meeting. However, the sheikh realized, that the rabbi realized, it's not a trick. It's not if you know the right buttons to press, you're going to get there. It's not an incantation, okay? You can't force God's hand, and the fact that we have that in all our synagogues doesn't mean that we thereby are able to really establish that level of connection. And the Muslim sheikh was able to do that, and therefore was worthy. The first he said, how could the daughter of the... the Innkeeper be like the priest, but now he sees that yes, that's how it is proper in this case because this person really achieved that frame of mind that enabled him to have that connection. So, what do we see from this? Okay, so first I'll ask you a question which some of my friends who I gave the article to read, uh, there's an article that I wrote about this um, in English even, and also in Hebrew, but I wrote it also in English. Some of my friends said, you know what, this is really a form of Jewish triumphalism. Because what this, Jewish triumphalism, because ultimately what the story is telling us is that the Muslim sheikh was able to achieve this because he saw and knew this was Yudke Vavke, the Chetragrammaton, the four-letter original unutterable name of God. He had this, and therefore he was able to do it, and therefore it ultimately is a justification of the Jewish way of seeing and doing things. Uh, what do you think about that idea? Okay, so is this, following your understanding, is this a kind of Jewish triumphalism? That the Jewish thing is really at the core of the Muslims' abilities?
Right. It's saying that the fundamental religion has changed. Jewish religion, but we've messed it up, and that's why we're in this situation as we create. Okay, so we messed it up? Okay. I'm trading, oh, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to trade you all this stuff. All the little conniving written in Damascus in the era of, I said it before, the Western, the French and the British took over that part of the world. The whole world is Constantinople and the Ottoman Empire. Right. So, so you have to figure out a reason why we're here and not here. And, but who is there? The person who is there is this Muslim person who never studied in any yeshiva, doesn't know a word of the Talmud, doesn't daven according to the Jewish prayer book, but is the Muslim's <laughs> abilities derived from this tablet that it says these letters. Yes, sir. It, it seemed to me that the shape learned for the sake of learning was the rabbi learned with an ulterior motive. That's what allowed that extra connection between the shape, between the eternal, that the rabbi could not achieve. He just did it because it's a pure thing to do. Okay. So if it was a matter of technique. Technique is not enough. Okay, the story is showing technique is not enough. The form of the letters of God's name, to see that, you could see that hundreds of times in the synagogue, that's not a sufficient condition. So in a certain sense, that plaque or the representation of God's name is supposed to, in a certain sense, be transparent. Persons are looking at this, but what are they supposed to see or recognize or become connected to? Not the letters. The letters are not the trick. They're supposed to get people's minds focused on Misha Amar Olam, he who said, and the world was created. And that's the point of the exercise. And therefore, the person, it's, these letters are not the necessary and sufficient way of doing that. They're supposed to be helpful in doing that. But if you don't have the proper mindset and the proper way of approaching and the proper ability, you, those letters won't do anything for you. They won't do anything for you. Um, and I also thought about this and I said, well, when the rabbi looked at that tablet, Okay, this is all supposed to be like a mystical parable. So when the rabbi looked at that tablet, he saw Yud, Hey, well, 
What did the sheikh see? Maybe the sheikh saw Allah. Maybe the sheikh saw whatever he Hmm? It doesn't matter. Because he says it's the God who created the world. It doesn't matter the name that someone would call it this and someone would call it that, but it's the same God. So in that sense, right, you can, that's what Maimonides also says. Maimonides said about Islam, he said, Islam and their idea of conception of God are perfect monotheists. The problem that Jews have with Islam is not their theology and the God that they believe in. They have a very pure knowledge and recognition uh, in principle of the creator. They're against any represent, physical representation of God. They have no pictures in the mosques. They have all the arabesques are letters that are okay. And therefore, Maimonides said the unlike what the Maimonides thought about the Christians, who he thought that the Trinity was something that's not really monotheistic, but he said, uh, Islam, he said, so the main thing in Islam and in Judaism should be that there is one God, one creator, one source of existence, and we should be able through our life and religion and activities and devotion to be able to come close to and into contact with somehow to touch upon that recognition. Um, and sometimes, okay, there's, you could get that from all different ways. Okay, like Avigail has a whole lesson about the seventh chapter of the tractate Berachot in which a rabbi said, you could get that from nature. If you see an amazing, awesome natural phenomenon or, and so on, there's a special beracha. You should say why, because this is a manifestation of God. You should not only say, oh, that's a giant mountain. You say, amazing, that's the work of the creator. A sunset, we went to the redwood forest. So we said that beracha, okay. so. The rabbis were trying to get people to be able to see or experience God in a variety of ways, one of which is prayer, one of which is various kinds of contemplation and devotion. But um, so, uh, that's what, and according to as it's described here, so whether or not. Okay, so I, I did a whole attempt to find, was there a person in Damascus, a, a Sufi sheikh living at about that time who, according to historians and people knowledge about Islam, could fit this bill? It would be like this person, or the inspiration for such a person. And all of the books that I read and the people that I consulted failed to come up with such a person who is both involved in mystical knowledge and in general universal human knowledge of the seven wisdoms and open to people from other faith communities and in discourse with them and not so much caring about the Muslim hierarchy and so on. 
Um, and also Rabbi Galante himself, if you read the books that he wrote, he wrote a couple of books, pretty solid books, but he doesn't come across as the greatest luminary of the 18th century. But it's, what is clear is that Rabbi Farhi, who's living in Jerusalem, for the, the book is published in 1842, so let's say in the 1820s and 1830s, is going around to the people in Jerusalem and telling them this story. And the people are listening to him and not throwing him out of the shul. So in his mind, the notion that the Jews and the non-Jews have a common realm of discourse of the seven wisdoms and that they worship the same God, the one creator of everything in existence, and that great people from each of these traditions can have a closeness to God, and that it could be that somebody who never studied in the yeshiva and never studied Talmud and never read a word from the Jewish Sidur could have even a closer connection to God than somebody who is living out their life as, as it were, the perfect exemplar of a Jew, that that could be possible, says something very remarkable about the type of attitude that Rabbi Farki had and that he was telling the people in Jerusalem that they were listening to and receiving this type of knowledge and direction and inspiration from one of the leading rabbis in Jerusalem. Yes? For vain. Like we own him in some yeah, way. Yeah, right, something like that. And so this would be to carry the name of God in vain. And he shows this by making this um, character of 
Gentile, but really believes in God, and really doesn't think that it is in, uh, all along <coughs> he's, he's uh, like the way the rabbi should be, but he isn't. Right. Well, we well except the first line says that the rabbi was a righteous and completely pious man. Right. So the only thing that was the difference, according to this, is that the sheep could tell if somebody was going to get better or not. That's, that's the only difference listed. No, there. because there is the difference that the rabbi was, all the time he was, or he was lying to, to he, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he lied to, to the person who was honest with him, and he didn't count on him. All the time he is on the side of, I am better, I could, you know, right. manipulate so, him. I could do all his thoughts. So are, are you saying the first line of this is a lie? It's, it's no, far, because the, I no, guess. It, this is about the prophet saying that which we listened to and believed as true, the pious rabbi, is not that which he thought. I mean, really, you're saying is it a lie? It's a form of a lie. This was the image, but the reality was. Well, it's right. It could be that he was pious in the sense that every mitzvah in the book, he did it according to what's written in the book. He did everything. He's davening three times a day. He never ate none kosher for. He did everything as it should be. And um, in that sense, he was completely pious and so on. But at the end of the day, that wasn't the sufficient condition for. What that wasn't the point of the exercise. The point of a Jewish life, of a pious life, the life has value in its own right. Okay, observance of mitzvot has a lot of benefits and a lot of things, but over and above that, it should enable people and be a vehicle for a religious existence which is beyond the practice of the mitzvot. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.